This is an ABC podcast. As a young man, Lee Berger set off for Africa on the hunt for fossils that would help unpack the story of our human origins. At the time, more experienced paleoanthropologists warned him, look, it's all been discovered. There are now more fossil hunters out there than there are fossils. But despite the naysayers, and much to Lee's delight, at first it all went brilliantly. Lee discovered two hominid teeth, the first new hominid fossil found in southern Africa in almost 50 years, and those two teeth made the cover of National Geographic. But just as suddenly, his luck turned and the finds dried up. Lee was hearing colleagues at conferences murmur things like, I've never seen somebody go so far on just two teeth. It seemed like it wasn't just Lee's career that was in the toilet, but the whole enterprise of finding new hominid fossils. But then one day, Lee took a trip to a field site and his young son Matthew tagged along. That day, nine-year-old Matthew made an extraordinary discovery. And a few years later, it was Matthew again, along with a team of six young female scientists chosen especially for their skinniness. And trust me, there was a much deeper reason for this than aesthetics that we'll get to. It was this team that risked their lives to bring back evidence that could revolutionise our understanding of what it is to be human. Hi, Lee. Hi. That's a pretty amazing uh, introduction to someone, I have to say, to someone's life. When you think back to young Lee, what would he have made of this life that you've built for yourself, this career? Were you interested in finding things, cool things, left behind by other societies, even as a kid? Oh, when I grew up in one of these sort of idyllic rural settings of, of, of South Georgia, where I'd spend my time looking for you know, Native American artifacts plowed up during as the fields were plowed after rains and that sort of thing, and collecting rocks. I came from a long history of, of sort of people looking for stuff. My grandfather was an oil wildcatter out of Texas. Not a very good one, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't have a last name that uh, you'd hear about that's on oil company band. But but it was was in my sort of family DNA for that. And I was a bright kid, but, you know, trying to do the bare minimum to get through high school kind of sort of kid. And I was told, you know, you you don't have that many choices. You've got to be you know, a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, an accountant, or a preacher was kind of your, that's, that was your, your window of, of what, what bright kids did. The Southern United States, uh, you know, include preacher as one of those categories. We, we have those other ones, I think. <laughs> so you did get a scholarship after school that seemed to be setting you on one of these tracks. You were going off to, to learn to be a lawyer on the pay of the uh, US Navy. How did the subject suit you? It, it didn't at all. <laughs> I actually was gaming the system to get that. I needed a scholarship. I came from, you know, my mother was a teacher, my father an insurance and real estate broker, and I needed a scholarship to get to university. And I figured out that most of the scholarships, the Navy scholarships, very prestigious scholarships, went to people doing engineering. And they're some of the hardest scholarships to get. But I'd had a little insider information that said that if you went for something like law, (laughs) that the Navy actually needed lawyers. And you had a very good chance. And so I went that way and hated every moment of it. I was arguing with professors, you know, in those classes of 300, how to make yourself not popular. And (laughs) I ended up 
failing all of my courses uh, in in pre-law, but I took electives. And I took these electives kind of on a lark. I took I took three of them, and they were critical geology, archaeology, and and videography. And that took me on a whole nother story. But uh, and I made straight A's in those. But I was in danger of failing out, losing this Navy scholarship, and having to pay it all back by going to serve enlisted in the, in the Navy. Until, oh, my goodness. Until, so what happened when you went in and had to have a, a talking to with your, your Navy <laughs> officer in charge of this uh, career that was not going so well at law school? So you've got to remember this period, 1985, you know, sort of in the height of Top Gun kind of idea. And, and my academic advisor was this lieutenant, a, a naval aviator, right cut out of that mold. You just Think of that, and what's that in your him. mind is, is him, <laughs> at L- Lieutenant Ron Stites. And he pulled me in the office, and there I'm standing at attention in front of his desk. And he says, you know, he's got, I can see my transcript on, on the front, on his desk there. And he says, burger, and he slides it across, you know, I'm at attention, and my whites in there. And he says, what do you see here? And I remember muttering something like, a failure, sir? You know, <laughs> terrible boy. I mean, he had my life in his hands. And, and he said, I don't see that. He said, I see someone, and he taps those electives, those straight A's, that hasn't found what they love. And he said, if you make me this promise, that you will go and do what you love and leave university now, find that, and then come back, I'll sign your release papers right now. Life-changing moment for me. So after that meeting, you headed back home to Georgia. How did you first get a job? <laughs> I had it back. You got to remember, I was the kid who was supposed to go far. I'd come out of this small town, Sylvania, Georgia, and was going to go a long way with this naval scholarship and all that. And I come back and I've effectively failed out of college. And so I went to Savannah, Georgia, where we had a, a house there. And, and that was back in the days where they had these multiple TV stations. You know, there were three, ABC, NBC, and CBS in the United States. And I drove by one of these TV stations and I thought, you know, I have, I've taken a single course in videography. Video was new then, so it's a little different. And I, I pulled into the station and walked into this secretary guarding the door, you know, because you didn't get past these places. And I said, you know, I want a job. And she said, no, you know, there's the door. And I said, no, no, I, I, I really, I, I'll work for free. And as I did this, one of those great serendipitous moments, the head of the, the, direct, the director of the TV station was walking behind me. And he stopped and said, what's going on here? And I said, I turned around and said, you know, I can shoot video. I'm a <laughs> trained videographer. <laughs> I'm trained. I'm at one course in college. <laughs> but, and I said, it, and I'll do anything. I'll sweep the floors and I'll work for free. And he said, you can't work for free. And I said, ah. I've got him now. That's <laughs> like a job offer, right? And so he gave me one of the worst jobs in the world. Anyone in media would know back then that you had these 11 o'clock news. And he put me hauling a camera around the floor into positions being screamed at by a producer to get exactly the right position. These things weighed like two tons each. It was awful under these really hot lights. And within about three months, I was actually on the director's board at the doing the director, and then uh, an opportunity to to uh, do uh, a news photographer came up, of course, with my vast video videographer skills. And I, uh, I, I managed to become a videographer still on the night news. 
And I had one of those, uh, a remarkable circumstance happened where a young man from the rival TV station had arrived at a hospital and I got there first and my station was closer to the hospital. A police officer had been shot. And they did, that didn't happen a lot then. And his lights didn't work. And back then you couldn't shoot without lights. And we had these big belts and giant lights and uh, I calculated to do a good deed. I was a boy scout. <laughs> and I said to him, okay, you can stand next to me and use my lights, which was big no, no. You know, if I'd been trained as a journalist, I would have never done that. And he got it, but I got the story back. So it headlined on ours. He didn't get back in time. And so the next day, the head of that television network, which was the big deal in that town, called me up and said, you know, I heard what you did last night. I want to make you the night news director and photographer for a, a new experiment of a crime thing all overnight, which was, you know, I was 19 years old, 20 years old, dream. And I did that. And it pays to be nice, which is the great moral of that story yeah. for me, which is not something journalists always learn. Yes. So you were on this trajectory to have this great, exciting career in, in news and, and TV, and then something happened one night at the Savannah River that made you think twice about your fittedness for that. What happened? This was a day where, you know, journalists were coming from the best universities, Columbia and all these. I was way out of my depth. I just want to say that as I was going into it. But I was doing this night news thing, and it was great, chasing police effectively. This was before the age of reality television and that sort of thing. And I hear on the scanner that a woman has fallen into the Savannah River. And it's, it's, it's probably a little over a kilometer wide, maybe a little bit more, and deep, 50 feet, you know, Big ships go through it and fast. And I, because I was a Boy Scout, you see, I, I, I heard where she'd fallen in. So I went down river about a mile and came up in the middle of the dark onto the river street. And I look up and there's all the lights and stuff a mile away. I'm like, oh, no, I've missed the story. I'm going to get in trouble in the morning because I've missed the, you know, people falling in rivers of big news in Savannah, Georgia. And... And as I'm sitting there, I just put my kit on and all this heavy lead weights around my belt and my giant camera on the shoulder. And I look up and about 150 meters out is this woman going out to sea. And I look around and I'm, I'm alone. And I had to make a decision, you know, do I get the shot? Or, and, I, and I dropped the camera, broke it. And they were very expensive cameras, <laughs> like fifty thousand dollars. You know, it was terrible. And I jumped in the water and swam out, got to her, and I was an accomplished swimmer and trained for that. And and ended up a long, long way down in the marshes, and the police arrived and all that. And I, it became a very well-known story. Was she okay? Yeah, she lived. Yeah, but news people don't intervene. And then I came along as this kid who wasn't trained in news and. Was trained as a scout and did the right thing. Well, yeah. And I realized it's probably time to go. And so I did what Lieutenant Seitz said. I went back to university doing paleontology. And a book that you came across while you were studying paleontology, Lee, really captured your excitement for human origins and the story of our species. What was that and why did it make such an impression? A, a strange thing and not for the reason. Lucy, written by Don Johansson, who'd later become a good friend of mine and a mentor. But um, it was strange what did touch off. I, re I read this book, a very popular book at the time, about what was thought to be the oldest human ancestor, Lucy's skeleton, one of the very first skeletons ever discovered. And in that book, it talked about the scarcity of these things. 
these fossils of ancient humans. I was going to be a dinosaur paleontologist because everyone's going to be a dinosaur paleontologist, right? That's what you, you become. And I read in that that even if you were in a place where these fossils of ancient human relatives are known to be, you had something like a one in 10 million chance of finding one. And for some reason, that struck a part of my soul deeply. And I looked at that and said, well, now here's a field that if you make even one little tiny discovery, you told the story of two teeth, proving that right, you can change things. We can change and understand them. Not only that, and it's in Africa. So you didn't see that or hear that statistic of one in 10 million and think, oh God, what's the point of trying? You thought, wow, what an invitation. And I thought that's mine. That's mine. <laughs> that one in a 10 million that, that's is going to be mine. That's mine. And, and. So you were planning to go actually off to East Africa with the author of this book, with Don Johannesson. What happened? Um, so he, I meet him I, very cheekily. He was giving a lecture and I called him up and said, you know, and, and met him and he liked me. And so he said, why don't you come and be a geological assistant at the Old Vi Gorge? And three weeks before that was going to happen, he lost the permit. He was kicked out of Tanzania to do it. And my life is over, you know. This was about to be my dream. And he called up Richard Leakey, a famous Leakey family in Kenya, who was then running, working with Harvard University for their field schools up there. And he said, told him the story. Now, they hated each other. So I've never figured out whether this was, you know, Don doing a bad deed to Richard or whatever, but luckily I confronted with all of them. They were both great mentors of mine. But well, I imagine there's a lot of rivalry in this field. Oh, People are yeah. all looking for the same stuff. Well, and in a field that at that time, uh, you it was a, a field of scarcity. In fact, that was almost a badge of honor of the field. That's, that's what attracted me. And, and and it was not just, it wasn't just competitive. It was damn near, you know, violent. And they, there were books written like The Bone Wars and that sort of thing. And and I ended up uh, in East Africa and on my very first day there at Kubi 4. I was out with a, one of the great fossil hunters of Richard's, uh, John Kimmingich. And he was showing me these fields because I got up at 4 a.m., kind of jet lag like I am now because I only got in here yesterday. And, and... He was showing me, and on the way back to the Land Rover in the morning, about 11 o'clock, it was hot, and I looked down, and there was a there was a, a piece of femur, the leg bone of a hominid. So my very first morning. Your first morning, first morning in Africa hunting and there for fossils. It was. And boy, you couldn't have you couldn't have dragged me out of this field at that moment. <laughs> but you didn't stay in that part of of Africa. Where did you head instead? So. Um, I, both Don and Richard gave me the same advice. I, I wanted to be a fossil finder. I didn't want to be just a lab rat. And, and nothing wrong with lab rats, but, but it was, you know, I wanted to be someone who found these things. And both of them were very clear. Um, they were both young enough and, and the field was vicious enough. They said, there's not going to be room for young American here in East Africa. As big as East Africa is, that was the, it was, and they said it like that. And both of them said the same thing. They said, however, it looks like Mandela is about to be released. And if, it, if he is, things are going to change in South Africa very rapidly. And so you can take the greatest risk of your life. You can go down there and none of us may ever be able to talk to you again. Or it may open up. Mm -hmm. And both, as rivals as they were, they both had the same advice. And I called up... I had applied to graduate schools working degree in our fields of PhD, you know, so you have to have that. And 
all over the all over the world. I got into all of them, but hadn't heard back from Philip Tobias's program at the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa. And it was rumored that he had a safe full of fossils that had been found, you know, decades before that were undescribed. And I called him up on a ticky box, you know, from <laughs> Nairobi. And he picks up the phone after going through his secretary and goes, Oh, dear boy, he says, when are you arriving? And that started my journey in, in South Africa. <laughs> your first fossil discovery in South Africa? Tell me about those teeth and how it happened. You know, I threw myself into this. I, he did have a safe full of fossils, but, I, you know, other people's discoveries have never interested me as much as, you know, the potential of ones that I could find myself. And I'm not sure why. That. It's a character flaw of mine, I know, but it's, uh, but it, it's true. And I started looking almost the day I arrived there. I started calling up farmers and going out into the bush and going in the areas where these cave sites, because South Africa's cave sites, it's not surface sites, like in East Africa and walking the fields. And everyone said there's nothing left to find. They said, you know, South Africa and that region had been looked at the longest of any place in Africa since the 1930s. Everyone had been there. And if anyone, anything was there to find, they would have been found decades before. And I, but I came out of East Africa with a different philosophy there and that I need a big site because these are the rarest fossils on earth. So if you want to find the rarest things, go to where there's lots of fossils. And I found this site called Gladysvale. And I organized a student expedition. When I say organized student expedition, I was teaching uh, honors course in, in, in anatomy uh, at that time. And I drafted all my students, told them <laughs> they would fail if they didn't come work for me. So organized is yeah. a, a different word. And um, we were we were about 10 days into their sorting blocks and, and a young woman named Michelle Erasmus picked up this rock and, and handed it to me and said, is this a tooth? And there was this hominid tooth. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is it. This is it. And then the next day, a second tooth came out. And I for would, it, as you said, it made the pages of National Geographic. It was that rare. Um, and I sat for 17 years thinking the next rock I would turn over would have something extraordinary. <laughs> and it didn't happen. <laughs> 17 years. 17 years. Um, now, I look, to be fair... I had other discoveries, not big hominid discoveries or anything, but I was doing the good science stuff and working on other projects. I I saw, I identified that the Tong child had been killed by a bird of prey, and that started a whole field of science. Even as a young scientist, uh, I was one of the first person to give ideas of long arms and short legs, that they were more ape-like, these ancient ancestors. But And I was rising through, and I was made chair. of. I took over Philip Device's position at you're the ripe age of like 29 years old, which was unprecedented and way too young, by the way, don't do that. Um, and, and, but, you know, by the end of that decade, late 1990s, I was beginning to hear at conferences, you know, I've never seen someone go quite so far on two teeth. Ouch. And that was not a compliment, as you <laughs> rightly know. Were you starting to worry yourselfly, like maybe they were right, maybe it had all been found, maybe you just had these two freakish moments of good luck very early on in your career and the days of great fossil finds were over. I couldn't help but have that because everyone was telling me that and I was becoming fast the poster child for that. 
And there were two things going on in this field, um, both very negative. One was some groups of scientists deliberately creating the idea that these are scarce resources, and you had to be very special to discover them. And I don't know that they were doing it consciously, but the subconscious made, made them very important and very powerful and created a very negative part of the field where those who discovered fossils controlled the field. And it was down to about seven or eight white men. And then there were the, the, the other part of it was that my generation, there wasn't another generation. Literally, the gap between me and the, these people who at that time were in their 60s, I was at, in, in my middle 30s, there was no one between us. They, they didn't have any offspring. Hmm. And that created, and my generation was beginning to talk words like open access because we were the Google generation. We had invented things that we didn't know how. We knew copyright was dead. We just, and we knew that giving stuff away somehow created value, but we didn't know how it worked. And we were seeing the clash. Well, Google comes to play a very important part in the next stage of your story because one day in 2007, you were playing around with this interesting new platform, Google Earth. What did you type in, first of all? I was at the lowest moment of my life, I first have to say, just to place this. I, my exploration had failed. 2007, December of 2007. I had just spent the last six months serving on a committee to replace myself and with a young person to bring technology in, imaging technology, which was the new method because the idea was since nothing new was being discovered, we should concentrate on the methodologies to study the old things. And I'd effectively been fired. I hadn't been fired formally, but I was out of a job. And I, I was surfing the internet as one does when one is, you know, my generation does when they're, you know, trying to find themselves. And, and I found Google Earth. And then I found this little white box up in the corner because I had spent the late 90s experimenting with GIS uh, and GPS and satellite images, trying to use them. And I put these coordinates I'd done from this big National Geographic expedition in and they were all wrong. They're Every all wrong. One of them. The U.S. government in the 1990s put deliberate error into the satellite, uh, the, the GPS satellites, to prevent them from being used in terrorism and by hostile powers. And that com uh, combined with the sort of primitive nature of handheld GPS at the time, it created compounding error. I'd literally wasted three years of my life. So what did that mean for where you'd been looking for fossils? Well, it, it didn't mean anything where I was looking. What it meant was data I had published and data I had used was wrong. But in every error, there's an extraordinary potential because I could see the sites I'd meant to do. And so that error allowed me to correct it. I could move from the wrong point to the right point. And if that error hadn't occurred, I would have never learned what a fossil site, a cave site, looked like from outer space. What's it look like from outer space? Well, they look like a couple of things. It's not quite that easy, but they tree clusters certain types of trees, the wild olive and white stinkwood, which have very distinctive colors and at different times of year, one has leaves, the other doesn't. And I began to see that from space. And I realized 
it taught me what they look like. And then it taught me that in these regions that were the most explored regions on earth, it looked like, you know, if that was a cave, then this looked like a cave. Even though I knew it was impossible. That place had been explored. There were 104 caves. There was nothing left to find. Enough so that it made me want to ground through them. And so I created a map. And I went as far away from Gladysville as I could get, you know, because 17 years, I nothing was there. Nothing was in the vicinity of that. Because, you know, you don't look in your own backyard for discoveries. And on the first day out, I found over two dozen brand new sites. What, what do you mean? What did you see that... Cave sites, some with fossils, right in front of us that we'd all missed. And now I was using this, this, these targets to identify them from space and walk to them. And I became addicted. I spent the next months just going. I'd come home at night. I'd create a new target space. I gridded it out like a U-boat map on the surface and said, you know, here I'm going to work my way across this area. And day after day, I found first, you know, dozens, then hundreds of sites. So that by the time we got to July, I discovered something like 750 previously unrecognized fossil sites and cave sites in the most explored area on planet Earth for those very things. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, Lee, you were just describing that with the help of, of different data from Google Earth, you realised that there were different places that you could be focusing your fossil hunting and this whole new series of sites suddenly opened up to you. In 2008, you went to take a closer look at one of those sites, Malapa Cave. Who did you take with you when you went along on that visit? So just to take you back one step, that, that cave wasn't named uh, at that time. It was a, a dot on a map one kilometre away from Gladysville, where it's been 17 years. One kilometre? One kilometre away, oh, right next to a dirt road that I'd been on every other scientist has <laughs> been on hundreds of times. See this cluster, almost the last place I was going to look because I'd moved back into Gladysville knowing there was nothing there. Of course, by then I knew that was wrong and walked up to this site, found it, and then walked in the valley. This, this is a week before Matthew's there. And there were these fossils just on the ground there. It was a tiny site, though, totally different than everything else we'd done. The size of this studio, the size, you know, sort of five meters by four meters across. Everything that shouldn't be great sight went back because it bothered me with my then nine-year-old son, Matthew, my dog, Tao, and a, a young postdoc named Job Kibbe because the person that was going to replace me had been killed in a motorcycle accident a week before, young guy. And he, Job had asked me to be his postdoctoral supervisor, and I said, no, I'm a field guy, you're a lab guy. And, you know, but then I, I took him out there to show him the site because it bugged me. Why did it bug you? <sighs> Because I hadn't seen it, it was so deeply bothered me, this idea that a place that I thought I knew better than everyone else in the world, I really did, 
uh, that there was something like this site with fossils on the surface that was right next to where I'd been working for 17 years. And that bugged me deeply. And so it had been sitting with me stewing. And so we get to the site and literally I tell them the story of how I found it and, you know, gave them a kind of primer on how you see caves from space. And then I said, go find fossils. And if you do, I'll identify them. And that, and with that, Matthew and my dog Tao race off into this game reserve. It's a giant game reserve, giraffe, leopards, all that stuff. And I thought they're going to go chase those. I'll see them at lunchtime. And uh, and so I was saying there with Joe going, you know, the miners found this. They were looking for lime and they blasted a couple of blasts, but they left it. And I can't figure that out. And as I finished saying that, Matthew, who'd run off the site 15 meters off, says, Dad, I found a fossil. And I looked over, he's in tall grass and there's a lightning structure next to him. I'm like, he didn't find a fossil. He's off the site. There's no fossils there. But, you know, he's, you know, he's my nine-year-old son. Like everyone, you want to teach him fossil hunting. And so I started walking towards him and I got five meters away. And I literally knew that his and my life were going to change forever. Because sticking out of the side of this rock, you have to imagine, he's got a rock a little larger than a rugby ball. And out of the side of it, I could see a hominid clavicle. That's that that bone in your in your in your shoulder girdle, beer that you can feel the kind of S-shaped bone. And the reason I knew what it was was at that moment in history, I was probably the world's only expert on that bone. I did my PhD on the shoulder girdle of early hominids, what? and there it was. And I took the rock, you know, like anyone. I said, you know, what else could it be? And Matt said, I cursed. I don't believe that. But I looked at it, and then I turned it over, and on the back of that was a jaw with tooth coming out and other parts. Matt had not found just a clavicle. He'd found perhaps the rarest thing at that moment in history, a partial skeleton of a hominid. It was just lying there on the the grass. In this block on the grass had been blasted there or thrown there or rolled there by baboons. I don't know how it got there. Um, and, And that started the story of Malapa Cave, which means my home. And would ultimately turn into a brand new species of hominid, two million years old, that we would call Australopithecus sediba. So that's who the, the jawbone and collarbone belong to this new yeah, species. A new species. What, what, tell me about it. What did it look like? So it was, it, it would turn out that we'd find almost an entire skeleton, first of a child that was almost the same age as Matthew, ironically, but two million years old, <laughs> small brain, very primitive, but with characters that looked like it was both ancient, the Australopithecines are sort of the ancient version, the more ape-like version of our bipedal ancestors, and then a trans, almost like a transitional form between that and Homo. It looked like the almost perfect, what you would have used to call in the old chain of being a missing link kind of thing, even though that, that's a terrible term. Um, and so we called it in the first paper. It was a special edition of the journal Science on the cover. Um, and we called it a homo-like Australopith. Um, and we called it Sediba. And, uh, it, and it changed my life. I mean, I went from one scientist out of work, effectively, to one of the most dynamic and successful projects on human evolution in a period of two or three years. We, so did this Sediba live in trees? Did it live on the land, you say, bipedal? Like, was it, it, was it walking like we were it around It walked the on two legs, and it had a pelvis very much like ours, but it, it, it was also different, very adept at climbing and that sort of thing. And so it was, it was something that, that we would eventually find more skeletons, the first site in Africa to find multiple skeletons uh, of, of one individual, males and females, and, and it was remarkable. And 
we learned a ton about this. We learned that it was living in a sort of alpine mist forest, that we even could find eventually the food in the, in the calculus and tartar, the, the meals that it had eaten. These individuals had eaten, they were eating palms and grass seeds and bark, um, which was probably for, as a fallback diet during starvation uh, periods. We'd find the animals that lived with them, saber-toothed cats and hyenas and, and antelopes. It was, it was remarkable, all in this little tiny hole. Changed my life. I became focused on it. I had dozens and dozens of papers, grew this giant team, experimented with open access, everything I couldn't do before. Um, I was living the scientific dream. I had won the scientific lottery thanks to that fossil and five years of that. What changed then, Lee, when a guy called Pedro turned up at your house? So I was I was actually in my office and... Um, I was building a, a, a laboratory to protect Malaf because we'd found organics. We found fossilized skin, two million years old. And I was building this laboratory, but we'd been so successful in getting everything published that I was actually locked out of the site. And I didn't have anything else to work on. We published everything that was out and that. And so I was sitting there literally going, I need to get back out and exploring. I quit exploring the day Matthew went, Dad, I found a fossil. And, you know... That old joke about buying lottery tickets, you know, it's impossible to win the lottery twice. Well, it's certainly impossible if you don't buy a second lottery <laughs> ticket. And for us, exploration is a lottery ticket. And and I was thinking about going back and in, in using that map I'd created back in 2008 to go underground. Because all those things I was finding are actually just doorways to a subterranean environment of hundreds of kilometers of caves in that region. And as I was doing that, Pedro, my former student of mine, walks to the door, tears in his eyes, barefoot and bankrupt, and saying, you know, I need a job. He'd gone off diamond mining. He'd just vanished off of his studies, and I hadn't seen him in years. But he was my caving buddy back in the 90s. And so serendipitously, uh, I bought a motorcycle to the university, which is probably the biggest miracle you'll ever hear about. <laughs> and you could do that. I wonder what account that goes under. Oh, motorcycle. my God. Yeah, motorcycle. <laughs> yeah. They don't have them. I'll tell you that. They don't have accounts for that. And then he quickly found out he wasn't physiologically appropriate to follow my map. What I mean, do you mean? He was too fat to get into these very, very small spaces. These are not all gigantic caves. We enlisted two amateurs, uh, Rick Hunter and, and Steve Tucker. And tell me just firstly, why did you think caves were worth exploring? Why, why, what told you that caves were going to be somewhere that fossils might be? In fact, everyone told me they weren't good. Um, but I had learned a little bit from these discoveries, maybe not to believe everyone that there wasn't anything left to find. And the, the mythology at the time was that there would be nothing in the, in the deep underground because that was the young stuff that the older caves were eroded on the surface because the land surface erodes down and exposes them. And the underground caves are young, and so there's nothing to find. But, you know, I'm not a great believer in what other people believe by that stage. And so I, that's where we, we started going. They had my map of all these hundred sites. Of course, they did the human thing. They went to all the ones they didn't know first. And so this, this began in like... Um, uh, uh, June of, of 2013, These July. two young, yeah. skinny cavers. Skinny cavers. <laughs> were sent and, off and, and, by you and Pedro. And down they go, and they're coming back, and they're reporting back that they're not finding a whole lot. I told them to start in the most explored valley in the entire region, a space between two famous sites of Swarkrons and Sturkfontein. They've been known since 1930s and 40s. 
Besides, because I'd learned a little bit from Gladysville, right? You know, Malapa was right next to where I'd been. So go looking where we think we've seen everything. That's Look it. There. And finally, on September 13th, they went into the Rising Star Cave System, one of the best known cave sites in all of sub-equatorial Africa. Because um, people trained in it. It was had all the right kind of stuff right next to, easily accessible. And on that journey, four and a half hours in... Uh, <laughs> Steve uh, was uh, was trying to maneuver so that Rick could take a, a picture of him, and he slid into a gap up a climb called Dragon's Back, and his feet went down into this little tiny hole. And I mean, you have to imagine, it's probably uh, 16, 17 centimeters wide, and he said it goes. And in caving terms, that means it goes down. And, <laughs> and they slid down into a chamber. There they saw some bones. They didn't know what they were. They took some pictures. And then they rang my doorbell, uh, Pedro and Steve did, a couple of nights later, you know, with Pedro going, you're going to want to let me in, kind of <laughs> creepy. And I did. And they showed me pictures that I just couldn't believe. First Why? Picture, what could you see? I saw the jawbone of a primitive hominid lying on the surface on dirt in this cave. And they described how remote it was, how you couldn't get to it. I knew I'd never be able to get to it. I saw in the next picture a skull just sitting in dirt. We don't find these things in dirt. We find them in concrete like rock. No one had ever seen images like that in all of scientific history. As you say, you were too big to be able to get to this incredibly inaccessible part of this cave system. Who did you happen upon who you trusted and who was the right size? So I had no idea how I was going to do this. I knew it was going to be one of the most difficult things. And I first went in there and I sent Matthew down, who was then 15 and very skinny, to actually so take wait, wait, pictures. wait, wait, you sent your son down first. Uh, y- yes, into this incredibly dangerous place to take pictures because... Tell me more about that, Lee. Well, you know, <laughs> I shouldn't probably. I could get arrested, right? <laughs> no, the, I sent him down because I suddenly had this idea that, you know, I'm trusting my entire reputation on what two amateurs that I n- hardly know. And pictures they brought back, I needed someone I trusted to say that that stuff was really down there. So I taught Matt how to do scientific pictures and sent my skinny 15-year-old down. I didn't Did, tell my wife, no. Could you do any of the caving with him? Like, oh, is yeah. There, so you can I get to a certain I got all the point. way right to the top of what would eventually be called the chute, this really 12 meters with these squeezes of, like, the widest parts, maybe 19 centimeters, goes down to, like, 17 centimeters, oh. vertical twists and then turns. Terrible. And down he went, came up with a harness. No, you can't wear a harness in there. It's that it's that narrow. You can't wear a harness. So you're really just letting him drop down through this. Well, chute. yeah. All he has to do is, you know, inhale, and you stop falling. It's not that. It's not that bad. So and we're going to skate over this parenting decision and move on. To his cat. He did reappear. <laughs> he reappeared. And what did he say? He, he, he took the back of the camera, and, I, and you know, as he emerged, I'll never forget his head emerged from this thing. And instead of going, you know, are you okay? I went, and? You know, and he goes, Dad, it, it, it was beautiful. My hands were shaking for three minutes before I could take a picture. And he showed me the back, and then there they were. And so I had this decision. How was I going to do this? I mean, I'm sitting here in the dark in this remote cave, 130 meters back, this horrible thing in front. And so I didn't know how I'd find scientists who could do this. So I, the next day I put a Facebook ad out. I <laughs> I need, I need skinny scientists to come drop everything, come to South Africa right now. I'm not going to pay you. I am going to risk your life. And I'm not going to tell you what we're going to be doing. Yeah. So how many people apply for that 57, kind of gig? 57. What? 
and uh, 57 qualified ones. A lot more people replied, but 57 qualified ones, of which I selected the six most qualified, which just happened to be young women. So they all had to be cavers and they had to be archaeologists or paleontologists? They had to have a PhD or, or, or studying a PhD in paleoanthropology, archaeology, geology. You had to have excavation experience, caving experience. Medical training would be advantageous, all these things. I mean, a list like you wouldn't believe, and they all had it. They all had the right stuff. And that's, I guess, why they kind of became known as the underground astronauts, you know. <laughs> And what else was different about this expedition? Once you'd, you'd collected this team of six extraordinary scientists, in terms of how you were going to share it with the world in real time. So I, I took a real risk. I realised that this was maybe one of the rare moments in history. Remember, up until that moment, still the fossils were some of the rarest sought-after objects on the planet. I thought, you know, here's a chance to share live a discovery of, of, of one of these rare objects. with I thought it was one skeleton. And it was risky. National Geographic was very reticent about it. Everyone was reticent about it because, you know, you're going to contaminate the science. But, you know, there we went on social media, live tweeting and Facebook, about a million followers after all, and, all was said and done. And you're sitting up on the surface in a tent with mm-hmm. a screen watching as these scientists are inching their ways through this incredibly narrow cave system. What were they bringing back? Well... Day one, they brought back that jaw, and I immediately knew there was something odd about it. Day two, they brought back three right femurs, and I realized that we had not a skeleton but multiple skeletons because hominids don't have, they have two legs just like you and, and me, and I had three. By the end of the week, we had the richest fossil hominid site discovered in all of history. In all of history? All of history, by the end of the expedition, we had over 1,500 remains of over 15 individuals. It was extraordinary. I mean, we knew we were in the midst of something just dramatic. It, it was, it's, it's hard to describe something. I felt, and I, I, still, I still think if you go back and watch like Dawn of Humanity, there was actually a PBS Nova National Geographic team with me. Uh, you'll see, we were very emotional. We all realized this was like a moonshot. You know, we had, we had, we were in something very, very special. And, of course, it did turn out to be special. So who did all these fossils belong to? They belonged eventually after we, I put together one of the largest scientific teams in history ever to analyse fossils like this, bringing in early career scientists from all over the world, diverse backgrounds to really look at this. We had a new, another new species um, <laughs> that we would name Homo naledi, putting in it our genus. Uh, we didn't know how old it was when we published it. And it was a species with a tiny brain, um, a brain barely larger than a chimpanzee's. But it was tall, you know, five and a half feet kind of tall, but skinny, skinny, skinny and and powerfully built with ape-like shoulders. But as you move distally towards the hand and feet, it became less and less primitive and and more advanced till you reach these hands, which were almost superhuman with a long thumb, but they were curved and feet that were basically just like our feet, but with curved toes. And, and we had this, and you know, it was weird. We had all of it. We had multiple individuals, everything from neonates all the way up to the elderly and skeleton after skeleton after skeleton. And we, that's very rare, isn't it, in any, <laughs> in any genus to find full skeletons? Uh, if I would say outside of Neanderthals, unknown in the, in the fossil record to, to actually find things like this. And, 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 and we announced, and, and we also announced this very controversial thing. Because they were in this chamber, 
all alone. Not one other animal was with them. We eventually hypothesized that they deliberately put their own bodies there. Now, wait a minute, because that's what humans do. We bury our dead, but isn't that one of the things that's unique to us? In fact, some people would argue that's almost the defining character nowadays. Of, of That's one of the last things we have left that separates us, the recognition of self-mortality and universal ritualized treatment of the dead. And here we were arguing something with the brain the size of a chimpanzee was doing it. And it would turn out, once we dated them, to a surprisingly young age. Everyone thought they'd be millions of years old. They were actually only 230,000 to 330,000 years. They were living at the same time as the earliest Homo sapiens alongside us in Africa. So that was a surprise. But humans wouldn't do this sort of thing, if it were true, for another 200,000 years after this. So we are, we were, you can imagine the controversy that that, that set. Explain to me, Morley, why that was the assumption you and the other scientists went to. They're all together in a cave. Couldn't there have been, couldn't they have been washed there? Couldn't they have been dragged there by predators? How do you know they were deliberately placed there? This was one of those rare situations where we could actually almost do that Sherlock Holmes sort of thing by eliminating all of the probable we were left with the improbable. We could eliminate that they weren't washed there. We could see that from the geology. We could see that they'd not all gone in at the same time, that they were layered on top of each other. They were different events that occurred over time. We could eliminate all those things, but we just couldn't tell you why. But I'll tell you this. What is so funny about this, and it shows you about the, you know, our drive for human exceptionalism. We've got to be unique is that if we'd found 15, at that stage, 15 human bodies like this, not a person on earth would not say, that is a mass grave of some type. That is a mass disposal area of humans. Absolutely. There would have been no doubt. We didn't have a human. We had something foundationally not a human, something not in our... And, you know, you know, you touch on that. You, you, we, I, I'm doing it. You're doing it. We throw the word human. You know, there's no definition of human. How can that be? Yeah, you said. <laughs> look it up right now. Have your people Google it. You'll get something ridiculous like having the a human is having the characteristic of people or a person. Homo sapiens will have the characteristics of a human. It's circular because we've never discovered an outgroup. And my colleagues and I, the more than 150 scientists involved with this, one of the largest science projects in the world, we think that we may now have that outgroup. So they're close enough to us in certain behaviours, but different enough that we can define what we are in contrast to them. Well, they are bipedal, so they're hominids. They're within the lineage of bipedal. But they that's about where it stops. They share thick enamel and a few things with us, but they have a tiny brain, they have different, they're not adapting to the world in the way we are. They are a form of an outgroup, and we've begun to find culture. What else? So what was in the burials? We annou- I announced uh, in December that we'd found fire. Within the next couple of months, you're going to see extraordinary discoveries that we've made. We're on the verge of, of, for the first time in human history, being able to examine a non-human species with culture. Lee, you said that you were too big to get into this site, which, as you describe it, has totally is in the process of revolutionising how we understand human origins. 
How did that change? So in the process of publishing one of these big discoveries, which will hopefully come out in the next few weeks, I'm, I'm actually hoping, I was hoping it would be out by my time I took this trip, there were contradictions. Uh, you know, only 47, 46 people had ever been in that space by that time um, because you have to fit all these criteria and you had to get in. It's incredibly dangerous. And of that, only like three geologists. And there were these contradictions in the research, which I can't really talk about now, but you'll know about them more in the near future. And I was one of the few people that had the whole picture in my head. Last February, I decided that I'm turning 57 that year and that if I was ever going to make an attempt to get in there, I'd this would be it. And so I lost 25 kilograms. What? Over a period of seven months. And uh, in July, July 28th to be exact, I, I made an attempt to get in and got in. And How hard was it? It was, I've been sitting telling the world how terrible that was for, since 2013, it's twice that bad. I, of course, was the tallest person and by far the largest person that ever made this attempt. I almost died. That's for another telling. But it was horrible. But it was also that the four and a half hours I spent in those chambers revealed, I think, the most remarkable discoveries of my career. What was it like to finally sit in that space? Oh, incredibly, profoundly emotional. It was powerful. It was, and it was an incredible moment of discovery. And, you know, everyone says technology is going to solve exploration. I learned something on that journey. We still need humans. Did you learn different things from being there in the cave? You will see, as I said, I don't, I would not, someone like me would not use this lightly. We're about to announce the most important discoveries of my entire career. You've talked a few times, you've used the analogy of winning the lotto, right? From that first femur you found on your first ever fossil hunt to the teeth to this first collarbone and jaw and then this whole cave full of a hominid species. Do you think there are more lotto wins ahead? We already made them. Um, during COVID, I'd invented the absolute worst project in the world. You know, this kind of scientist flitting about every time we make a discovery, flying in and out, working in closed, confined spaces to find these things. You know, I had the worst pandemic project anyone could have designed. Made me revamp everything and 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 start working with these young mentees of mine, these young African scientists who were stuck with me in South Africa. We made another major discovery 250 meters away from Rising Star, a new cave system. It's all over YouTube if you want it. We, we haven't even named the site yet, the 105 site. I can tell you it is already one of the richest hominid sites ever discovered, and it's just going to keep happening. Lee, it's just been absolutely fascinating and inspiring to hear your story and some of your discoveries. Thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. Well, it's my pleasure. And do join us on Sunday. We're, Brian Green and I are going to have a, a remarkable conversation about exploration and discovery. That's right. Lee Berger is one of the guests of the World Science Festival, which is running in Brisbane right now until the 26th of March. And um, Lee will be speaking on Sunday, the 26th of March. All the details at the World Science Festival Brisbane website. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.